Revelation chapter 17. We'll start with verse 1. We're still in the interval now between, well actually no, we've already gotten past the seven bowls. We've just finished the seven bowls. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, came and spoke with John. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who sits on many waters. Now, there's the Ah, excuse me. There's the uh, def- the translation of prostitute, which I said I didn't like. Now, who is this prostitute? Well, we have a clue. First of all, the prostitute is sitting on many waters, and also when we get down to verse five, is she's going to be called Babylon the Great. So the prostitute is the prostitute of Babylon. We know in the Revelation fourteen eight. We read this, a second angel followed, saying, It has fallen, Babylon the Great has fallen, who made all nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Okay, so we know that the prostitute is Babylon the Great, and she is causing people to have sexual immorality with her. Now, what is the imagery of sexual immorality in the Old Testament? Idolatry. Idolatry or spiritual infidelity. And so we know that this, this is not a literal prostitute. This has to do with spiritual infidelity. Okay? Now, how, how can we prove that this whore who is Babylon the Great, how can we prove that it is apostate Israel? We go to Revelation 11.8. Their dead bodies will lie in the public square of the great city where also their Lord was crucified. Well, where was their Lord crucified? This is the two witnesses. Where, were they, where was that? Where was the Lord crucified? Now, there's a great city called Jerusalem. In Re- Revelation 16, 19, the great city split into three parts. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. So here in Revelation 16, the great city is Babylon the Great. In Revelation 11, 8, the great city is Jerusalem. If two things are equal to the same thing, then they themselves are equal. All right, so we got Babylon the Great is a Jerusalem, apostate Jerusalem, causing nations to have sexual immorality with her. Now, this prostitute is sitting on many waters. Now, what I'm going to do is show you that John has gone back to the old Babylon, the original Babylon, the, the 6th century B.C. Babylon, and is using that imagery to refer to this whore who's Babylon the Great. We go, uh, but before I do that, I want to show you that John himself interprets the many waters, okay? He says that the many waters, he also said to me, Revelation 17, 15, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitude, nations, and language. Now, when you see waters, same thing as seas, what does that always refer to in prophecy in the Old Testament? Gentile, Gentile nations. And here we have peoples, multitudes, nations, and language. All right? So this prostitute, Babylon the Great, is sitting on many waters. And later on in the chapter, we'll see that she is sitting on the sea beast. Now, what is the sea beast? Rome. Rome. So we've got Babylon the Great sitting on Rome. Now... I want to go a little bit further here and look at the old Babylon. Apostate Israel is the new Babylon. The old Babylon, the original, the city on the Euphrates River. You, Babylon, Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 51, 13, you who reside by many waters, Richard treasures your end has come, your life thread is cut. Now, the original Babylon had the Euphrates River that ran right through the middle of the city. And then there were canals that cut off of the Euphrates River. And so Babylon was famous in the ancient world for being a city that was sitting on many waters. And so that's where the imagery comes from, that Babylon is sitting on many waters. Because now apostate Israel has taken the place of pagan Babylon. Apostate Israel is going to be judged just like Babylon was judged. Uh, as Jeremiah says, your end has come. And that actually happened. When, when did Babylon go down in the, in the Old Testament? In the Good. I knew somebody over there would know it. 539 B.C., the Persians came and wiped it out. All right. So this Babylon sitting on many waters, and she's going to be judged. Now, the idea of her, 
the, uh, of her having sexual immorality, it's with the kings of the earth. In this case, it means the kingdoms of the Roman Empire. They committed sexual immorality with her. And those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. And as I said early in the Old Testament, this is a common metaphor. I just picked out one verse out of many, many, many. Isaiah 121, the faithful city, that's Jerusalem, capital of Israel, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice, righteousness once dealt in her, but now murderers. Now, how is it that apostate Israel is committing sexual immorality with the kings of the earth? Now, this verse causes people some problems sometimes. How do you think that this is happening? Yeah. Well, in addition to the immorality referring to all the idolatry and wickedness they were doing, it also, especially like in Ezekiel, was a metaphor for the unfaithfulness they had toward God. Uh huh. That they traded worldly things for, for God instead. So it was the same thing as an unfaithful wife. So when it's talking about the kingdom sexual immorality with her, it's sort of the same way it mentions in the Old Testament where they trade God for all the pleasures and things of the earth. Right, and so and so Israel in the time of Jesus was supposed to be married to God, right? But instead she's getting it on with the Roman kings of the Roman Empire. Well how in practical terms was she doing that? All right. Well, were there Romans? Were there Jews in the Roman Empire? They were all over the place. One old church historian, Harnack, said there was seven percent. Remember at Pentecost, it says Jews from every nation came to to Jerusalem during Pentecost. Remember that? Where did they come from? They came from all over the Roman Empire. So they were everywhere. Now, what were they doing? They had their synagogue system set up, right? Now, at this time, Rome is paganism is having trouble in Rome. It's on its way down. If you're a pagan and you want to find out about the true God, well, you hear well, these people in the synagogues, they're teaching about the true God, right? So I'm going to go there and find out about the one true God. And what do the Jews tell you? Well, yeah, there's one true God. His name is Yahweh. And there was this fake Messiah back in Israel that we had to kill because he went around claiming that he was the Messiah. And now he is in a bubbling vat of excrement in the deepest parts of hell, like one rabbi one time taught. And they blaspheme Christ, and they turn people away from Jesus. So that's how Israel and Rome are both committing sexual immorality. And of course the Romans, if, to the extent that they're pagans, they're trying to get people to believe in their pagan gods rather than Jesus. So either way, they have, they're turning people away from Jesus. Now, let's look at old Babylon here. Jeremiah 51 7. When I say old Babylon, I mean the, the city in the 6th century BC. Jeremiah 51 7. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand, making the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations go mad. So old Babylon was doing the same thing. Remember, old Babylon was famous for all that sorcery and witchcraft and demon stuff and occult stuff. It was the three wise men that came from Babylon. They were probably soothsayers. And so that metaphor, when you make nations drunk, that means you're feeding them their, feeding the nations your idolatry. Now, the new Babylon, who's the whore, apostate Israel, Romans 2, 23 and 24, you who boast in the law, that's the Jews, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because so the Jews are spreading their, their satanic garbage uh, religion all over the Roman Empire. Okay, so this is the image we have here. Now let's go to verse 3, Revelation 17, 3. And he carried me away in the spirit, that's Jesus carried John away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet sea beast. Full of, the sea beast was full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now we talked about this earlier. The sea beast, of course, stands for what? Roman Empire. It's scarlet, so that it's scarlet, it has... Seven heads and ten horns. What other beast in Revelation is scarlet and has seven heads and ten horns? 
the dragon, which is the devil. So this shows that the sea beast is totally identified with the devil. And we've got the woman, that's the whore, that's apostate Israel, sitting on this sea beast. What does it mean to sit on the sea beast? Well, let me give you a quote from David Chilton, a preterist theologian. He says this, Israel was dependent upon the Roman Empire for her national existence and power. From the testimony of the New Testament, there is no doubt that Jerusalem was politically and religiously in bed with institutionalized paganism, cooperating with Rome in the crucifixion of Christ and the murderous persecution of Christians. And so you see them working together to try to take out the Christians. Now, Steve came up with this, and I like this, because you got the whore of Babylon riding on the sea beast. We, because we're Americans, we think about somebody riding on a horse, right? Now, if you're riding on a horse, you're, the rider is telling the horse where to go, right? Well, li- listen to this famous limerick. There was a young lady of Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They returned from the ride with the lady inside and the smile on the face of the tiger. So what happened? It was the, the ridee, if you will, the person, the thing being ridden ended up telling the rider where to go. Who was, the, who was the boss? In this case, it was the tiger. In our case, it's the sea beast is the boss. The apostate Israel whore goes where the sea beast desires the sea beast to go. Let's see. I can't, the, all right, let's go to verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Now, this whore was dressed very nicely. This was a high-class whore. This was not one of those cheap huddle house whores, okay? This was the real, I shouldn't say the real deal. I mean, this is the, this is, she was seducing whole nations, okay? So, in Revelation 18, which I'm going to skip, Revelation 18 is just about the fall of Babylon the Great. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And here's a description of the whore. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensually, this is Revelation 18, verse 7, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning, for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I'm not a widow, and will never see mourning. Well, that's what she said, but that's not what happened. Now, she's clothed in purple and scarlet, those are the colors of the high priest. The high priest also had a gold cup that he poured wine libations over the sacrifices. And so this is a parody of the high priest of Israel. This is false Israel, not true Israel. This is a quote from J. Massingberg Ford, who got her Ph.D. at, at Mercer, which I think is in Macon, Right. She died in 1975. She became a professor at Notre Dame University, and she's quoted all the time because she went into all the background of Revelation. She says that this whore is a parody of the high priest on the Day of Atonement wearing the vestments especially reserved for that occasion. That's purple and scarlet. The high priest has purple and scarlet ephod. especially reserved for that occasion and holding the libation offering. He holds the gold cup to pour the wine on the sacrifice. In Exodus 28.6, we see the high priest's Garments are described. They are to make the ephod of finely spun linen embroidered with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet. So we see the same color scheme there. Oh, you can't see that too well. This is what an ephod looks like. Purple and scarlet threads there. Of course, a gold cup. Now, the gold cup is full of abominations. In the Old Testament, that word abomination is almost always, or lots, many, many times associated with idolatry. Unclean things of her immorality. Now, I don't know what John saw in his vision, but we know that, this, that pretty soon we're going to see this whore drunk with the blood of the saints. What is the most unclean thing in the law of Moses? If you touch it, if you drink it, uh-huh, and, de- and, and when something's dead, there's going to be blood on it, right? Because life is in the blood. Because the Old Testament law was designed to preserve law, the blood separated to God because the blood had to be offered to God to, to take because of that life that the blood represents in order that God does not take our life. Yeah. Don't eat meat with blood in it. Menstruating woman, if she sat on something and a man sat on where she sat, 
He doesn't offer a sacrifice. A mistreated woman couldn't participate in the sacrificial meals. There's tons of things like that all through the, through the Old Testament law. Okay? So she, you could, we could picture, we don't know, but we can picture that this cup that she had is full of the bloods of, her, of the saints, which is um, that's the worst kind of idolatry and uncleanness that you can imagine. Or it could be that John is seeing in the blood, he's seeing spiders and snakes and all kind of unclean things that are in the law. I don't know. But anyway, it's a pretty good image there. She's filthy. She's nasty. Now, so here's what we have here. We have a picture of a woman that's actually beautifully adorned. Gold, precious stones and pearls, purple, scarlet. She's got a gold cup, but yet she's got all this filth. She's carrying this filth. And isn't that what whores are like? They look beautiful at the point of seduction. But, of course, the, the idiot that falls for, he's ruined his life. And that's kind of the, the imagery that we have here. That's something on the Internet I found. See, you can't tell here when this picture's a little bit fuzzy. She's relatively pretty as the way she's dressed, but if you can look at her face, she's got this evil look on her face. Okay? That's the whore of Babylon. That's what Israel was. Israel looked so good. Oh, we talk about Yahweh. We've got all the ordinances of God. We have all these synagogues teaching about God. But inside, Israel was ugly. Just like the lamb, the false prophet, had two little horns like a lamb. But inside was a ravenous wolf and spoke the mouth of the dragon. All right, verse 5, on her, that's the whore's forehead, a cryptic name was written, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the vile things of the earth. Vile things of the earth are just dirty things, unclean things, things of the law, which is already, we've already mentioned. The mother of prostitutes, that's an expression that means, remember when Saddam Hussein, we had the Gulf War, and the Iraqis were always saying, this is going to be the mother of all battles. And we remember that, the mother of, the mother of this. Well, Babylon Great is the mother of prostitutes. That means she's just not an ordinary prostitute. She is the number one prostitute of all time. She has on her head the, her name, the mother of prostitutes, Babylon the Great. This is a parody of the Old Testament priesthood, Exodus 28, verse 36. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on, engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. So the high priest has holy to the Lord. She has Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. You shall fasten it on a blue cord. It shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. So again, this is, this is supposed to be a parody of Israel. All right. Now I've gone to a lot of effort to show you that this Babylon the Great is Israel, apostate Israel, because there's a good number of Revelation commentators who say that the whore is Rome. Babylon the Great is Rome. There's a reason why, and I'll show you later. But I don't believe that because I can't understand why if the sea beast, which is clearly Rome, and you got the whore on the sea beast, and she's Rome also, then you got Rome riding on Rome. And that makes zero sense to me. But there's a lot of big shots that know more about this than I do that say it, but I, I don't believe it. All right, so we've established who the whore of Babylon is. We go to verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And that's where I say we got the idea that possibly the, in the cup. It doesn't say the, the blood is in the cup that the woman had, but she's drinking something. She's drunk. She's drinking the blood of the saints. So what a terrible imagery there of this woman. Verse 7, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the sea beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now we know the sea beast is the Roman Empire because in chapter 13, seven heads, the seven hills of Rome, and the seven kings, and then the ten horns of the ten constituent provinces of Rome. So that's, that's clear. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the chapter. But this angel says to John, why do you wonder? Now wonder has a sense of marvel, but it also has a sense of what's going on here. And I think the idea here is he's marveling at this crazy vision he's seeing, because you can imagine how awesome it was, but he's also wondering, what does it mean? And so Jesus says, I shall tell you, or the angel, excuse me, the angel says, I shall tell you the mystery of the woman, 
A mystery is something that's been hidden and then is later revealed. So I'm going to tell you the mystery of this woman, this whore, and of the sea beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And again, notice, Israel could not have existed in her pagan ugliness without the Roman Empire helping her. Israel could not have killed Jesus without the Roman Empire carrying out the, the crime with the soldiers. So the Roman, the, the Israel is sitting on that sea beast, the idea of support, the Roman Empire supporting Israel. We go to verse 8. The beast that you saw, that's the sea beast, that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Now what I'm going to do here, when I get to time words, I've got them color-coded. The blue is the past tense, the red here is the present, and the green is the future. Okay, So let me read it again. The beast that you saw was in the past, is not right now, and it's about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Right now, it's going to go down. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not now and will be present again. Now, this is a verse that really, in my opinion, really shows the preterist view. Because we remember the year of four emperors. Remember what year that was? 68, part of 68 and part of 69. And there were four emperors. Nero killed himself in 68. So in 68 and 69, we had four emperors. Okay? So when Nero killed himself, that's when the Roman Empire was fatally wounded. One of his heads, the sea beast heads, appeared to be fatally wounded. It appeared to be, it looked like the empire was going down. It actually wasn't dead, but it was real close. And a lot of commentators who watched the situation back then said, it's finished, the Roman Empire's over. But his fatal wound was healed. Now what happened is, after the three emperor, first three emperors of the four emperors of that year, they either were killed or they committed suicide. They were either assassinated or committed suicide. Finally, Vespasian, he left the Jewish war, because that was going on at the same time, came back to Rome and he righted the ship. He became a very good emperor for years later. And the Roman Empire came back and was very prosperous and successful. Yeah. So in that case, is it, I guess it's highly likely this was written very close to 68 because he says it's not. That's right. And a lot of the commentators point that out. So it's good that you saw that. Yeah. Now. I don't know how precise you can be about that because you could say he was saying is not in the sense that it's really close, close, yeah. But somewhere there in the mid-60s, he's writing this book. And you realize that most of the scholars today say that John wrote the book of Revelation in the 90s. You hear it everywhere. But if you lived in the 1800s, everybody was saying that he wrote it in the mid-60s. You know Schaff's church history? Okay, with this guy named Philip Schaff, he wrote the standard church history is still on the libraries it's everywhere and uh he wrote in the early 1900s and he said the majority of people believe it's the early date so i'm not worried about that i believe it's the early date in fact i think this helps prove it's the early date all right so moving on here we go to verses 9 and 10 here is the mind with wisdom the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman is seated there are also seven kings five have fallen one is the other has not yet come And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. Now, there's the color coding again. The blue is the past. The red is the present. The other has not yet come. The green, that's the future. Well, the seven heads on that sea beast, first of all, there are seven mountains. They do double duty for the symbolism. The seven mountains, I actually memorized them just for you. Let's see if I can do it. The Palatine, the Aventine, the Capitoline, the Quirinal, the Viminal, the Esquiline, and the Celian. Those are the seven hills run. They're still there today. So that hadn't changed. Now, now the seven heads are also seven mountains, and, and John tells us some more information about those seven kings, seven emperors, okay? Five have fallen. Well, Julius Caesar is number one, Augustus Caesar is number two, Tiberius is number three, Caligula is number four, Claudius is number five. One is, is Nero. Nero took over in the late 50s after Claudius died. And he was still there as John wrote the book of Revelation. One is. The other has not yet come. Well, after Nero dies in 68, he killed himself. One of the generals named Galba took over. 
When he comes, he must remain for a little while. Galba lasted for seven months. And then he was either assassinated or killed himself. I don't remember, but he was gone after seven months. That fits perfectly with what actually happened in history. The burning of the temple, did that happen during the seven months or after? Uh, burning of the, capital, the, the temple to Jupiter or the temple to... Jerusalem. The Jerusalem temple happened in August of 70. <clears throat> That's a good point. In the four, in the um, year of four emperors, the Roman temple burnt in 69 to the ground. That was a big deal. Calamity for the Romans. All right, now here's a hard verse here. Revelation 17, 11, The beast that was and is not and is himself an eighth king, yet he belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. Now, people have tried to identify the eighth king and I don't care whether you're a preterist or futurist or a historicist. I don't care who you are. Nobody can do it. And I think that the answer is, is because it says the beast himself is an eighth king. And so what you see here, we're talking about the horns, you know. And now we go to the, the then when we get to the eighth king, we're not going to be talking about horns anymore. We're not going to be talking about individual emperors. We're going to be talking about the beast itself. And so the eighth king is the whole rest of the Roman Empire. All of the kings that come later, they're all lumped together in this image of the eighth king because it's the beast is himself an eighth king. He belongs to the seven, obviously, because he's, he's the Roman Empire, and he's going to destruction. Now, when is the Roman Empire destroyed? He could be because the Christians basically wiped out the pagans and in 314 Christianity became it didn't become the official religion, but it came to, became tolerated in the, by the Edict of Milan by Constantine. And then in 380, with Theodosius the Great, Christianity became the only official religion, and all the other religions were persecuted. The pagans were persecuted. All right, 314, Edict of Milan, very famous date. Constantine tolerated Christianity. In 380, Theodosius I the Great passed an edict called the Edict of Thessalonica, and that made Christianity the only religion. In other words, no other religion was tolerated. It was the official religion of the Roman Empire. So you could say pagan Rome was destroyed. Or you could refer, that's religious destruction. It could be political destruction because the Roman Empire in the West went down roughly 476 is the date they usually give it when there was no more emperors. Again, to really understand this, you need to know a little bit of Roman history. You need to read Josephus. It, it, it makes it so much more real when you have the historical background, which these people had. Remember, people back reading this book of Revelation, they understood their history, just like we understand what's going on today in Washington. They understood all this. We don't. So it, goes, it does good to go back and, and get familiar with all that. Now, verse 12, Revelation 17, The ten horns you saw were ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Now, these ten horns on the Roman sea beast is so difficult that I have changed my mind. I used to think the two witnesses in chapter 11 were the most difficult parts of Revelation. I believe this beats it right here. I looked at a lot of preterist views, and, and most of them seem to me to be totally crazy. The futurists have a million different speculations, too. Everybody speculates, okay? But I found a quotation from, by a Greek philosopher and historian and geographer named Strabo. It was very famous if you read ancient history. He lived up in Pontus in northern Turkey. And he, said, he lived, uh, in fact, he moved to Rome and he, and he was tutored by somebody under Caesar Augustus. And so he knew the Roman Empire pretty good. He said that Augustus established ten imperial provinces which were ruled by Augustus directly and then Augustus also established 10 semi-autonomous senatorial provinces which were run by the Senate, not by the emperor. Now, if this is true, it would fit perfectly. So I'm going to assume this is true, but I'm going to tell you there's a problem with it in a minute. Because we got 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom. These 10, and kings, by the way, can be translated as leaders, prince, commander, governor, it just means a leader. It doesn't necessarily have to be a king. It's Basileus. So these ten governors, we'll call them, they had not yet received a kingdom. In other words, they were not autonomous. They were not 
separately ruled kingdoms under the, under the kingship of a king who could tell, who could set the affairs of that kingdom. It was not possible. But they will receive authority as kings with the beast. In other words, but the Roman Empire will give them authority to be provincial leaders within the Roman Empire. For one hour, that means for a short period of time. Now that sounds real good. I was real happy with that. But, but I went back to Wikipedia and looked up under Augustus, who was a little bit earlier than our time frame here, and tried to find 10 senatorial and 10 imperial provinces, and I couldn't find them in there. So I don't know whether Strabo was wrong. I don't know whether the person who was quoting Strabo was wrong. That's something I'm not, my scholarship is not deep enough to know how that works. I do know that most preterist theologians say that it's 10 provinces in Rome. How they explain this received the kingdom. Well, what they say is there are 10 provinces that they have not received the kingdom means they don't have total power as a kingdom, but they receive their authority as junior kings, if you will, as provincial governors with the beast. They're, they're part of the Roman Empire. They don't rule it. They're under the, the, the supreme head of the emperor. Now, I did find David Chilton, who I've used a lot, he says that the ten is not supposed to be literal. Ten is a symbol of manyness in the scriptures. Like ten, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, ten times ten times ten. The millennium, the church age, ten times ten times ten, a thousand years. The holy of holies, ten by ten by ten. That's as full as a physical thing can be that's got to hold the Shekinah glory of God. That's as big as it's going to be. So that is a common symbol in, in, in the Scriptures. And so if what John is trying to say here is there are ten kings, that means there are ten kings who have ultimate authority with the beast. Their, their authority is full, it's complete. So that's the best I can do with that difficult verse. Now, the next question is, is what are they going to do for that one hour, for that short period of time? And that's kind of a loose term, one hour. It doesn't mean literally 60 minutes. It means for a short time. Well, these, these, that's these ten kings have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the sea beast. Because obviously the emperor could not do anything without his subordinate provinces and generals and kings who led those provinces uh, without them to populate his tr army troops, he couldn't do anything. Now, they will wage war against the land. Now, the question here is, is what purpose do they have? If you say the purpose of these ten kings of the Roman Empire is to come into Israel and wipe it out, there's a problem. Josephus only has four of these provinces coming in to wipe out Israel. That's the first problem. The second problem is they wage war against the land. Well, it seems to me that the ten kings are going in to wage war against the apostate Israel, not against Jesus. So the way I take this is these kings have one purpose, which is to persecute the Christians in the Roman Empire. Because remember, Nero persecuted the Christians badly, at least in Rome, between 60, 64 and 68 for three and a half years. So when, they, when these kings, representing the Roman Empire and, and the sea beast, when these kings wage war against the Lamb, they're raising war against the body of Christ, against Christians. The Lamb will overcome them. Jesus overtook the Roman Empire. By the 4th century, the Roman Empire was Christian instead of pagan. Okay, but at any rate, we get the same idea of persecution happening against apostate Israel and also against the church. The Romans are, are, are doing double duty. They're going after the Jews and they're going after the Christians. We go to verse 15, and he that's, I think that's the angel, not Jesus. Angel said to John, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Now, we've already talked about that. Now, if you think about this vision, it says the whore is sitting on the beast and, and the whore is also on many waters. So here's the question. Is the whore on the beast and the beast on waters? Or is the waters just a symbol of the beast so all you have is the whore on the sea beast? And I don't know. I, I, it doesn't, I don't think it really matters, but I don't know. But you do, you do have sort of double imagery. you got the waters standing for peoples, nations, and tongues, Gentiles. And you got the sea beast, the Roman Empire. They're both there, whether, it's, whether one's a symbol of the other 
or whether, whether John saw both in the vision, it doesn't really matter. Now, this idea of, I've been saying this over and over again, that C stands for the Gentiles. I haven't given you much scriptural support for that as we go through here. But we can see here in Isaiah 17, 12 through 13, Ah, the roar of many peoples, they roar like the roaring of the seas. Many peoples, the seas, the raging of the nations, they rage like the raging of mighty waters. The nations rage like the raging of many waters, verse 13. So you see, this is common imagery. Nations, waters, seas, Gentiles. Now, I mentioned this verse earlier, Acts 2, 5. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. You see, the Jews were everywhere in the Roman Empire. They were everywhere. So the harlot, with her sexual immorality, standing for spiritual immorality, is seducing people all over the Roman Empire. They are joined together. But at what point do they stop being joined together? They're working together like this. Wherever the Roman Empire goes, the whore goes. What happens in history? Yeah, the Jewish war. Uh-huh. And we're going to find out that the revelation completely matches that in just a minute. Okay? Well, here it is right here. Verse 16. The ten horns you saw and the sea beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. So the sea beast is just going to turn around, take that whore, strip her clothes off, start eating. Whatever's left, the bones or whatever, throw them in a pile and burn it up with fire. Beautiful imagery. I don't know what it was like when John saw that, but that's what happens. And that's exactly what happened in the Jewish war. The Romans came in and burnt Jerusalem down to the ground. And John predicted it here in Revelation. They, the Roman Empire, the ten horns, will make the whore desolate. Desolate means destroyed and wild and wilderness. Jesus predicted this in Olivet Discourse, Luke 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that it's Jerusalem's desolation has come near. That's it. Jesus predicted it. John predicted it. Now, this is where I'm going to ask you to interpret this parable, all right? Now, this is a little bit off the subject, but I want to, I want to try to show you that once you see the preterist view of the Olivet Discourse, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, it all fits together pretty good. Now, here is a parable that Jesus gave near the end of his ministry. This is not during Passion Week, but it was getting there. Uh, I'm going to read this parable, and Ben, if you will, I'm going to ask you what the parts of the parable refer to, okay? All right. Matthew 22, verses 2 through 7. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for a son. Who's the king? God the Father. Who's the son? Jesus, his son. He, that's, God, that's the, the king, sent out his slaves to summon those invited to the banquet. Who are the slaves that were asking people to come to the wedding banquet of the son? I get you if he gets stuck, I'll call on you. All the prophets. Uh, who this is in the old? This is before the church was started. So it would be prophets who would call, inviting people to come to, into the kingdom, but they didn't want to come. Who were the people that didn't want to come to the banquet? Yes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth. Again, he, the father, sent out other slaves, other prophets, and said, "Tell those who are invited, look, I prepared my dinner." So who was invited to the banquet? Apostate Israel. And so the invitation said, look, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. In other words, come to Jesus. All the prophets are pointing to Jesus. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the others, that means more of these apostate Israelites, seized the slaves, seized the prophets, treated them outrageously, and killed them. Killed the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. If a prophet must die, he's got to go to Jerusalem to get killed because that's, what he does. that's where you get killed, in Jerusalem. The king, that's the father, God the Father, was enraged. So he sent out his troops, destroyed those murderers. Who were the murderers? Uh-huh. Who were the troops? How about Rome? And burned down their city. I mean, that parable, 
It fits exactly what Jesus was predicting later in the Olivet Discourse. Now, I don't know. I've been a Christian since I was six years old. I've read that parable a thousand times. Never occurred to me burning down their city might actually apply to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right? Go to verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. Now the there there is the, is the ten kings who are allied together. The Roman Empire in other words. The ten kings represent the Roman Empire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. The ten kings have a common purpose. They're all working together. And by giving their kingdom to the beast. In other words by giving the beast its power and authority until the words of God should be fulfilled. Now, what is that common purpose that they have? This is a little difficult. What do you think that is, the common purpose? Yes, and I think that's the answer is making war on the lamb. They have a common purpose. They want to destroy Christians. However, there's another idea here. It could be that the Roman Empire has a desire to not only kill Christians in the Roman Empire, but also to kill Christians in Jerusalem. Now you say, how can that be? They've already escaped. All the Christians have left. They've gone to Pella. I'm not sure that the Romans knew that. And there's a quote, and this is interesting. I found this quote. I thought it was obscure. But Steve had it in his notes too. When did you do that? Years ago? 2016. Yeah, he did that about five years ago. He found the same quote. By, it's it's a, a, by a Roman historian named Sulpicius Severus. And he said that when Titus, who took over from Vespasian, Vespasian's son, he was the general that had finally conquered Jerusalem, and he was deciding whether he was going to burn down the city or not. And some of his war council said, no, don't do that. Man, Jerusalem is a great city. It's, it's rich. It's powerful. It's one of the wondrous cities of the world. It, it shines gold when the sun shines up. Oh, don't get rid of Jerusalem. Don't burn it down. And the other group of advisors says, no, if we, and Titus went along with the second group, they said, look, if we get rid of the Jews by burning down this city, we're going to get rid of the Christians too. Because remember now, the, the Romans have started persecuting the Christians under Nero. So now the Romans knew who the Christians were. They realized they were distinct from the Jews at this point. And so Titus said, yeah, let's get rid of them both. Bam, burn down the city, get rid of the Christians and the Jews. But he was wrong. You didn't get rid of the Christians because the Christians escaped. But they had a common purpose, which was to destroy not only the, the uh, Christians in the Roman Empire, but also the Jews and the Christians in Israel. So the common purpose would be for the, to destroy the Jews and destroy the Christians also in Israel. Now, I, know if that's, I don't know if that's true. That's just an interesting idea. I think the easiest thing to do is say what you said. The common purpose was to wage war against the Lamb. Notice that they, these ten kings give their kingdom to the beast. That's the sea beast, the Roman Empire, because they're part of the Roman Empire. But look here, God has put it in their hearts. So they gave themselves over to the pagan Roman Empire, but God put it in their hearts to do this. So what does that illustrate? Did these ten kings come after the Christians? Did, did God violate their free will? Or if they came after the, the Jews, to the apostate Jews, whichever one it is, did God violate their free will? He says he put it in their hearts. Does that mean he made them do it? Yes. But they, they freely did it, right? Nobody forced them to do it. They went in and destroyed Rome excuse me, Jerusalem, they persecuted the Christians. God put it in their heart to do all this stuff, but they nevertheless used their own free will to do it. And that's, this happens all the time. God will put ideas in your heart. How many times have you ended up doing something and you realize God's, it was God's purpose? He did this. Because of things that happened, I made this choice. Something happened here, I made that choice. I had this idea, so I made that choice. And so you end up where God wants you. Did, did you, Was your free will ever violated? No, never. So God is in charge of history, but he does not violate people's free wills. They're still culpable. All right, let's look at verse 18. The woman whom you saw, that's the whore 
of Babylon. The woman whom you saw is the great city. Again, we've already said the great city is Babylon. The great city, Babylon, the whore of Babylon, which reigns over the kings of the earth. And I've got an alternate translation there, princes of the land. Now, this is another difficult verse. There's two ways you can handle it. And I, I had one way, and I, was, I asked Stephen when we were going over this, and he gave the answer that David Chilton gives. All right, so I'm going to give you that one first. Well, first of all, what is the problem? How is the, Babylon, the, woman, the whore of Babylon, how is she ruling over the Roman Empire? Isn't it the other way around? The Roman Empire is ruling over Israel, right? You see what I'm saying? You see what the problem is? You sure? Okay, there's the problem. How can it be said that Israel is ruling over the Roman Empire, the kings of the earth? Okay. Well, Chilton's answer is, and Steve's answer, was that Israel was spiritually ruling over the Roman Empire by spreading all their rabbinic religion all through the Roman Empire through the synagogues, which were everywhere. Every nation on the earth had a synagogue. And that's how they were doing it. Well, when I read that in Chilton, I wasn't really satisfied with it. And so I, I, went, I had another idea. Kings is Basileos right here. And under Thayer's lexicon, it can mean leader of the people, prince, commander, lord of the land, as well as king. But it has all these other definitions too. So if you translated this, the, Bab- the whore of Babylon reigns over the leaders of the land. Of course, earth can always be translated as land. Leaders of the land. Who are the leaders of the land? Well, that would be the Herod, Herod and Agrippa. Uh, it would be the people in the Sanhedrin, the political leaders of the land. The whore is the spiritual false religion of Israel. She rules over the people of the land, the political leaders of the land, because the political leaders of the land say, yes, whatever you say, we, we bow down to, we believe it. Now, here's an example of how this phrase, kings of the earth, which the same is here in Revelation 17, 18. In Acts 4, 26 and 27, we see the same phrase. And we'll see here that the, the kings are not kings. Verse 26, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Well, who were the kings of the earth that assembled against the Jesus? Verse 27, this, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate assembled together against Jesus. All right? Was Herod a king? He was? Well, okay, he was a junior king. Let's put it that way. He was, Pontius Pilate, I think, was a governor. He wasn't even a king. Herod the Great. Now, wait a minute. Now, you're saying that Herod, uh, I've got to, I can't remember. One of them was, the one of them that was in Perea was, was, I can't remember. One of them was a king and one of them was not. One of them got mad about it, actually, because he wasn't an official Roman king. But it doesn't matter. The point is, is he wasn't the king. He wasn't king of a whole country. He was just, he was the ruler of a little province within the Roman Empire. Okay? So if we take it that way, then we got the political leaders of the land are subject to this whore, the political leaders. I don't know if that's right or not. That's just my idea. I didn't read it in the commentary, so take it with a grain of salt. If you don't go that way, then you have to say what happens is, is that the whore of Babylon is seducing, committing sexual immorality with all the kings of the earth, like we said in verse 2, and that's how she reigns over the kings of the earth, by seducing uh, the people of the Roman Empire into their false religion. All right? How many Judaizers there were and how many God-fearers, I don't know. I know they were everywhere because they're talked about all the time. You read about them, but I don't know. I don't have a number for that. But, um, okay. This verse right here, by the way, I told you that a lot of people say the whore of Babylon is Rome and not apostate Israel. This is why. Because they say the woman, the whore, is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, what's the great city that reigns over the kings of the earth? Well, that's the Roman Empire, right? But it doesn't work because then you would have the Roman Empire. Oh, I'm sorry. Have the Roman Empire sitting on the, Ro- on the Roman Empire. All right, there's some applications here. The lamb beats the beast. Have you ever thought how strange it is that the lamb of God, who is Jesus, a little lamb, 
beats this monstrous beast that's scarlet with seven heads and ten horns, is, is empowered by the devil, is able to tear up a whore, eat her, spit her bones out, and catch her on fire. But who beats that? The lamb. So it often looks like the church is weak, that Jesus is weak, but he's not. Even if we suffer casualties along the way, the lamb still beats the beast. Remember this um, whore had martyr's blood in the whore's cup. She's drinking the blood of the martyrs. Or at least it doesn't say she was drinking. She says she was drunk on the blood of the martyrs. She was probably drinking it out of the gold cup. So uh, that's bad, but we're still going to win. We're still going to win. God sovereignly uses evil nations to accomplish his purposes. Remember those ten kings, the ten horns, they had one purpose, one common purpose, and they came to do what they want to do. Last application here is evil seductive beauty of false religions is suicidal. The Jewish religion is attractive. I don't know if you ever looked at it. Have you ever looked at it? It's attractive. So is Catholicism. I, I even flirted with being a Catholic one time when I was young because there were so many nice things about it until I look at it and say, oh, no, no. Well, you know, whores look beautiful too. In fact, if you think about sin, it all looks good at first, you know. Oh, boy, that make me feel so good, you know. And then the bad news happens. So we need to be aware. The devil comes as an angel of light. It doesn't come. He doesn't come ugly because we're not attracted by ugly. All right, we're ready to wrap it up? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, Lord. God, I thank you for these uh, folks that came out tonight. I pray, Lord, that the promise that you made that if we read the book of Revelation that we'll be blessed. And I pray, Lord, that we remember that you're always sovereign over the nations, that even when it looks like the church is being so persecuted, that you've got everything under control and that you're going to judge those who need to be judged and you're going to deliver those who need to be delivered. And that if we just stay close to you, we're going to be perfectly okay, Lord. Even if we're killed, we're going to be all right, Lord, because we're going to see you face to face. pray that you would bless everyone uh, here tonight in their Christian walk in every way possible. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.